Good. Well, uh, if you're visiting, really glad that you are here. Uh, you're amidst quite a circus. Uh, this is uh, Church of Bergano. We're just a bunch of people that are imperfect, saved by the perfect one who is Jesus, uh, who ransomed us, who died for us, who lived a life for us we couldn't live on our own, uh, to pay the perfect sacrifice that was due for sin from a holy, righteous God. He rose and ascended into heaven, gifts his Holy Spirit to the church, who are the assemblies of his people. So uh, the church is not the building, so if you thought you came to church, you really came to gather with the church. That's really what's happening here. And uh, it's just very exciting to be with the faith family every week. And uh, we just love to study the Bible. That's one of the ways that we worship him. Right now we're walking through the gospel according to Luke. Uh, it's been a really fun gospel. It's one of the longest gospels. It's written by this guy Luke who's a physician. Uh, he was also a doctor and uh, he was a beloved fellow friend of Paul who was a, one of the most prominent men in the New Testament who wrote almost most of the New Testament. Actually, if you compile just literature alone, Luke wrote the most out of anyone. So everyone thinks Paul wrote the most of the New Testament. It's actually Luke who wrote the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel according to Luke, a 52-chapter volume set. Just amazing and uh, just been fun walking through this. So um, before we kind of dive in, I just wanted to uh, do something in, in a bit more formality. So uh, where is Don Hoitzman, Mike McKinney? They can come up front. Uh, John Ido's not here, but uh, you guys can, yeah. Mikey, you guys can walk up here. Uh, here's, here's what uh, is happening. If you read the New Testament, uh, here's what's the beautiful thing about it. It will explicitly state and show uh, throughout the New Testament that God actually cares about the order of the church. So the church isn't just a group of people that randomly show up, gather together, and uh, sing songs, preach the word, and leave uh, with no real structure to it. So you'll actually see Paul praise the church at Corinth for, or the church at Colossae for their, for their order. Um, you'll see consistently that uh, men will go throughout Acts and actually establish churches and then establish structures for his leaders and men members and the assembly, and so um, what we've been doing over the last two years by God's grace in a new church is uh, chasing the unique dynamic of establishing and structuring a local assembly, which is his church, and uh, we are thrilled that God is in his kindness bringing a lot of those pieces together, um, and if you look through the New Testament, there are a couple key elements that he has, and there's a lot of freedom in a lot of areas, but there's some, some key areas that, that don't give any freedom, and one of those is, is elders, and what you'll see also if you look through the New Testament is how elders over time are appointed, number one, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit appoints them, and then they are affirmed ultimately first by the membership, those who covenant in the local assembly, and then ultimately by the elders. And so last Sunday, we installed our first official founding members who went through the class, understood what that meant, what that is, and we're going to be doing more of those. So don't worry, I know many of you guys are going, I want to be a member here. Praise God, we're going to give you time to do that. Um, that's, that's going to be an ongoing basis as people come in and people join and people explore what it means to be a member of Church at Bergen here. Um, and what we also got to do was to present the potential elders to the members. And we also want to do that this morning publicly because eldership is a public office. And very simply, if you're like, what are elders? Elders are just very simply people who God has gifted to the church to oversee the church and to shepherd and care for the church. Um, they're ones who are held accountable to God in a stricter way, James will say. Um, they're ones who are accountable for shepherding and leading and loving and encouraging and rebuking and doing all those uh, things for the sheep that are in their care, which is why we have members that say, uh, I want to identify here underneath this specific leadership. You guys aren't all called to identify to every elder that exists in northern Jersey. Uh, as a Christian, you should be submitting to those who God has called you to submit to, and the former way of doing that is by identifying with that local church. So uh, we wanted you all to see Michael McKinney, Don Hoitzma, John Ido's not here um, this morning, he couldn't be with us, he had plans that were already scheduled, so we just wanted you to see them so you had a face to their name, uh, so you could pray for them, uh, so you could thank God for what he's doing uh, at this church, and in establishing it, and giving order to it. So um, those are the three men, we're hopefully, Lord willing, going to install them in July, uh, on a Sunday morning, during a service, but just wanted you to see them, make them feel awkward, and, uh, and now you guys can, thanks a lot. Okay, so that's just their, just so you have... Uh, faces with names. And, and praise God, by God's grace, you know, we, we see in the Bible too that there's a plurality of men that operate together, that mutually submit to one another under their chief senior pastor, which is Jesus, to serve the church. So um, I will no longer be the only pastor. There'll be four pastors. Uh, so I'll just be one of the four pastors that, that uh, leads and loves this congregation. So um, he, is, he is good. He is good. Um, and before we get into Luke 2, so you can, you can get, grab your Bible, you know the drill, we're going to go into our Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back that we could give you, grab. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, we're going to finish Luke chapter 2 this morning. 
Um, and as you guys are turning there, I just wanted just uh, to, to, to say to you, uh, I was thinking about this a lot this week, and there's no real, uh, I might, I might, it seems a little bit, it feels a little bit awkward, but just to, just to say, it is so humbling that you all gather week in and week out to sit under my preaching. Uh, and I know it's not my preaching. Like, I know that it's, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through me. I know it's God speaking to us from his word. But I, I am keenly aware of my shortcomings. <laughs> Honestly, I am keenly aware of my failures. I'm keenly aware of the ways that I do not hit the mark. And I desperately need to lean into Jesus, who is my mark, who lived the life for me. I couldn't. But it is so humbling to have people that actually desire to sit under the word of God, to love the word of God, to submit to the word of God. Uh, the fact that you show up every week is, is, is deeply moving to my soul, and I, I mean that. So I love you. I thank God that you desire to sit under uh, my preaching. There's, there's hundreds of great men who preach the word in New Jersey uh, who you could choose to assemble with and gather with. So uh, thank you for entrusting me with the word, and uh, thanks for being sheep here. So on that note, let's just pray and thank God for what he'll do. This morning, God, thank you that you're the one who speaks, that you're the author of your written word. God, I praise you for this church. God, thank you for many brothers and sisters this morning who are away this weekend, dealing with graduations and traveling as summer is upon us. We pray that you give them traveling mercies, that you would remind them of the sufficient work of Jesus, wherever they may find themselves this morning, God. God, that you may keep working in a way that is tangible. God, that we may sense your spirit in ways that are true. God, help us to discern truth from falsehood. God, protect us from sin. God, grow us in grace. God, continue building and structuring this church in a way that pleases you. God, teach us through Luke. God, we're thankful for this gospel that we can see your nature and your character and your, your person and your work. Um, God, may we live and leave accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 2. We're going to finish Luke chapter 2 this morning. We are making our way through Luke. And some of you guys are, are, are kind of an interesting place. You're like, man, this, this beginning is real narrative. It's not real practical. Well, well, it is all practical because we're looking at Jesus. And Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And as you get into the, Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to do a lot more teachings, a lot more speaking, a lot more instruction in a way that will land on your heart probably more severely than, than other times. But it is, it is so critical and crucial that you get kind of the, the lead up to what Jesus will do. If you don't see Jesus as an infant being born, or you see him as a 12-year-old boy like we'll see today, you'll, you'll miss some of the gravity and some of the weight of what Jesus will do when he preaches and teaches and heals and starts his ministry. And so these are critical places that we will look at and study and marvel at as we get into his life and ultimately his work on the cross of his very, his very self, Jesus. And so here's what I want to do, just catch you up to speed just briefly, is if you're you know, dropping into Luke, Luke is writing to a guy, Theophilus. Theophilus is a, an educated man. He, he's a little bit skeptical about Christianity. Luke wants him to be, understand that he can be certain of the life and teachings of Jesus. And so he's writing this account that's revealing all that God did through Jesus, and he's specific in what he picks. So because he's a historian, he cares about dates, he cares about places. That's why you see throughout this letter he gives you dates, he gives you kings, he gives you leaders during certain times. He doesn't just say one time, long, long, far away, this guy happened to do this. He gives you exact moments and details so you can trust the Bible and trust what God's doing. And so as we saw him write, we saw that there's this Old Testament longing through out redemptive history with the people of God who are awaiting an ultimate redeemer and rescuer to come to heal them from their sin. And there was a sacrificial system that was instituted not to show you that you could atone for sin based upon animals and goats, but to show you that you can't and you need someone who can. And so he's basically unveiling for us this glory that is Jesus who has now finally come through all the promises that were marked out in the Old Testament through this Virgin Mary, a lowly woman. She was just a teenage girl with, you know, engaged to her future husband, and she gives birth to Jesus. We saw in humbling circumstances in a feeding trough, not in glory like a royal king you'd expect, and we see God just working in this. Then we saw last week how they actually come to the temple of God to dedicate him. Can we have child dedications and say, hey, God, he's yours. Hey, he, we're submitted to your will as parents, and we saw the profound nature of 
Him who is the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system, the one who is the temple, who will form the temple of God as his people, Mary's carrying that fulfillment of all prophecy, of all priesthoods in her arms. Profound. And, and they come up, and we have Simeon, and we have Anna who come and declare his deity, declare that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and we see all these exciting events. And, and here is what is important to understand this morning, because this is the only place in your Bible you're going to get a statement on Jesus' life before he's 30. So this is all we get, okay, is this little section of scripture when he's 12. Now, here's why Luke includes this. He includes this because it's not enough for us to believe and know that Jesus was God. He wants you to understand that Jesus believed he was God, okay? So it's, it's not just, oh yeah, I believe he's God. It's, he wants you to know, no, Jesus himself believed he was God, and he knew he was God at 12, Okay, so this is profound. Try to think back when you were 12. Okay, kicking rocks, playing kick the can, tag, just running around like a moron, right? Like all of us, right? That, that's what we did, okay? That was us at 12. We're kind of growing, kind of learning. He had the mind of God. He had the obedience of God. And he knew that he was the son of God. Amazing. So we're going to see that in this short, small section in Luke that Jesus knows, believes, and acts as the child of God. So we ended last week when he was six weeks old at the dedication. He's growing in favor with God, growing in wisdom. That covers 12 years of his life. He's developing like any child would, like any infant would, like any little boy would. Yet he is totally removed from acting in sin. Yet he is assaulted with sin, tempted with sin, challenged by sin. Yet the Holy Spirit restrains him, and this morning we land where Jesus is back at the temple. Ironic, we're going to see why that's profound. He's back at the temple. He's 12 years old after his presentation, and here he comes to reveal who he is to his parents, right? Luke records it so that the whole world might know it. Here we see in verse 41, as Mary and Joseph are trying to fathom and process all their son means to the world. Now his parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay, so Mary and Joseph are doing just right out of the gate what's normal to any Jewish family. And they're attending the Feast of Passover, okay? This was a really big one-day celebration, really attached to like a seven-day unleavened bread festival. So it's really an eight-day big celebration. But the Passover is like the one big day where all the Jewish people celebrated God as Redeemer and King. Okay, so this is, this is a massive day in Jewish culture. Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus. They're traveling what is kind of like a maybe a week's journey there, 80 miles all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, here's what the Passover celebrated very simply. When God's people were enslaved to Egypt, the Egyptians, for, for 400 years, Right, God raised up a guy named Moses who goes uh, in there and basically has him say to Pharaoh, hey, let God's people go. Pharaoh's not smart. He starts bartering with God, says, I'm not going to do it, doesn't think he's that big of a deal. So God says, okay, fine, ultimately I'm going to give you ten plagues. These ten plagues are eventually going to cause you to let my people go. Now, the tenth plague was where the angel of death came and his duty must have been the angel that got wings late. So he was bitter. So they said, God says, you're going to take this one. This is a, a hard one. So he goes down there and he's actually supposed to kill the firstborn of every animal and the firstborn of every child in Egypt. Now, here was the escape clause or the protection clause. Okay, you could find your unblemished lamb and you could, you could slaughter it and take the blood of that lamb and you could put it over the doorposts, over the top, over the sides. And as the angel of death came, he would pass over your house and death would not ensue you. Okay, there's a point to this. Okay, it's not that God was just being mean and there was disobedience so he thought it was cute to slaughter an animal and put blood over a doorpost. He was doing this because this all pointed to Jesus who would be the Passover lamb. So here's what happens. The indwelling sin that is in all of us that we are helplessly by nature and choice bent to not choose God, not want God, not desire God, to be our own God, to worship ourselves, to love everything that is not him. We want to you know, run the control shifters of our own life. Here's what happens. All that sin that ultimately according to God in light of his holiness Death is the ultimate penalty for that. Romans 3 says that if we trust in Jesus who will ultimately be slaughtered on the cross, his blood will be shed, that death sentence will pass over you. 
and you will be free from not only the bondage of sin, but the sentence of sin, which is death. So this is an image. This is a picture of Jesus foreshadowing the ultimate lamb, which is himself, who would be the payment for sin. So we could have him pass over us. Right, God will see the blood that is Jesus, and he won't, he, we won't bear the curse anymore. We won't, we won't have death. We'll have life. Not just life, eternal life now. Okay, so, so this is what is happening. This is all the point of this curse of sin that would pass over us and not destroy us. And so all the Jews follow those instructions. The angel comes, passes over all those who put the blood on their doorposts and over the top. And as they leave, the army regrets that they let him go. So the Egyptians come after him. They go through the Red Sea. Amazing miracle. If you know your Bible, you know stories growing up in VBS. They go through the Red Sea. Then the Egyptians try to go through God's you know, just destroys them all. Then they go in, and what happens? God establishes the Passover as a memorial to himself. Only God can do that, okay? We can't celebrate memorials for ourselves because we're not God, we're not worthy of it, but he can, the creator of the universe can. So he says, hey, have the Passover where you sacrifice these lambs that figuratively atone for sin so that you can celebrate me as redeemer and king and ultimately the one who will come to satisfy it fully and so they would do that then they would eat the lamb afterwards after they would slaughter it and so what they're doing is they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate this day it's one big day and they're going to celebrate the Passover lamb that is Jesus even to this day it's probably one of the biggest Jewish celebrations that that exists and so so here here's what you got to see Mary and Joseph are are taking the trek 80 miles to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover celebration and listen if you can picture it in your head this the crowds ensuing is like the Super Bowl crowds on steroids. Okay, so if you guys are, I don't know if you like football, but you know when you watch the Super Bowl like the week prior? Okay, you got the week prior. You guys, do you guys know what football is? Okay, because you're looking at me like you don't even, you've never even heard of football. Okay, so football's a game, there's a pigskin, you move it. Okay, so, so anyways, if you watch just around that time, you'll see just ensuing crowds, just chaos. You'll see so many people, there's games, there's people being interviewed. It's just one of the largest events in America, right? So, so, so picture that, but on steroids, hundreds of thousands of Jews pilgriming from all over. They would all assemble in Jerusalem, then they'd all look for relatives or people to stay with so they could have a house, so they could you know, find somewhere to stay. They'd all be trying to buy their sacrifices, buy their lambs, so they could you know, sacrifice their lambs. Imagine Roman crowds, Roman guards trying to like, manage the crowds, trying to keep people at bay. You've got you know, just bleeding sheep everywhere. I mean, it's just this insane, chaotic, crazy event. So you got to get that in your head. I mean, this is just hundreds of thousands of people all congregating in one city for one big day, okay? So Mary and Joseph bring their 12-year-old son into this thing to show him and to celebrate the Passover of Jesus as their redemptive lamb. And as they would do this, they would all come and eventually take, as a family, their lamb to the high priest. He would have it slaughtered, representing the atonement for their sin, the lamb that passes over. They go back to their house, wherever they were staying, with relatives, acquaintances. They would eat the lamb while well, they cook it, then they'd eat it, and uh, they weren't crazy, well, we might call that crazy. They would cook the lamb and then eat it, and then they would just sing, they would pray, and they'd celebrate God. So that, that's what they would do. That, that's what has happened here in these, these couple verses in the beginning that, that they're all taking part of. And here's what is, here's what is profound. As, as Mary and Joseph are walking, ascending to the Temple Mount with Jesus, he's 12 years old, and as Jesus is there watching this lamb be slaughtered and slain for sin, he knows he's going to 20 years from then be that lamb who will be slaughtered and will be slain. He gets that. Because we know he gets that he's God. We're going to see in this text. and we, we get that at 12 he had the full mind of God and he understands his purpose as the son of God. That's crazy. I mean, can you imagine standing there as a 12-year-old boy, and, and you, you, you get it, but you don't fully get it. Your mind's almost there. It's, it's, it's developing. It's growing. And you're seeing this picture of a slaughtered, bloody lamb for the sins of the world. You're going, man, that's going to be me. Like, I'm going to do this for the sins of mankind. I'm going I'm to take on the wrath of God towards sin. I'm going to be slaughtered like a lamb. I mean, he knew the promises. Because we're going to see him later. He's sitting down with the teachers in this passage and his answers and his questions astonish them. He supernaturally knew the Old Testament, knew the, the, the promises that were for him. So in all this fanfare, after they're done all of that, Mary and Joseph head home. And here's where it gets a bit 
crazy. As they're heading home, Jesus decides to stay. Okay? And Mary and Joseph just carry on. They get in their caravan, and they head back. And then they get a day's journey in at 25 miles. It's a long time. Okay, they get in. Now, now here's how they caravan. Just, just before you think that there's no, there's no insinuation that Jesus sinned. There's no insinuation that he deliberately said, no, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to stay here. Okay? We have every right, according to this text, to believe that, no, actually, Jesus decided to stay, and his parents just assumed he was in the caravan. Now, you have to understand how people traveled then. They would travel in mobs and mobs of people, okay? And they would have the children in the front, okay, just so they didn't lag behind. So all the children would be way in the front. Then they'd have the women behind them. Then they'd have the men behind them, okay? Maybe 100 people at a time in a caravan. So if robbers came when they were out in desert areas or wilderness, you know, if people tried to attack them, they were okay because they had a lot of people. And at nighttime, they'd all find their families or relatives and, and, and sleep in tents together. Well, this is probably when it's nighttime. It's been a day's journey. They all get back together to go to bed. Mary and Joseph are looking for Jesus, and they're going, where is he? Houston, we have a problem. Right? I mean, this, this is where it all kind of clicks in for them, where they're like, okay, I don't, I don't know where Jesus is, and they realize he's not with them. Here's what probably happened. I mean, Joseph probably just assumed that he was in the front, and Mary knew where he was. With that many people, and Mary probably just assumed that Joseph probably knew where Jesus was. I mean, up until this point, he was God, so he did everything he was supposed to do. He was in every place he was supposed to be. He was perfectly obedient and submissive, and yet at this point, Jesus is starting to separate himself from his earthly relationship to his father's true relationship. And, and, and this is where it gets a little crazy. As they're caravanning home, they see this. They realize that this is not good. This is bad. And so they realize this. And imagine being a mom. You know when you lose your son? I mean, if you're a mom in here, you know what that's like? I mean, that happens to, I should admit this, it happens to me a lot. I mean, I, I was in Marshall the other day. I mean, I thought that Jackson was with Kristen and, and I... Shouldn't, she always tells me, don't check your phone, but I, you know, I look down and check my phone, and I looked up, and he was gone. And I'm like, Jackson, you know, you panic for a minute, right? You get, I'm okay, this is a really bad day because her son was God, and she loses him. I mean, that's a, that's a super bad day. You know what I'm saying? Like, we've at least got intrinsically wicked children. Okay, this was a perfect child. You got a perfectly obedient child, and you lose him. This is really, really bad. So they're wondering, okay, if he's not here, there's got to be some massive reason for it. Okay, if he's not around or he's not being obedient, if he's not following us, there's got to be a reason that he's not here. So they trek back, verse 46, here's what happens. After three days, they go back to Jerusalem. They find him where? In the temple, of course. Jesus, sitting among who? The teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard them, him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Okay, that gets you grounded in my house. Are you serious? I mean, if, you're, if, if, if we can't find our son and we're like, hey, we're looking for you. He goes, why are you looking for me? You know what I'm saying? But Jesus can say it because he's God, right? He says, I don't understand why you were looking for me. Did you not know, and this is the crux of the whole passage, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. Okay, so Mary and Joseph go back to Jerusalem. Takes three days. Why? Takes one day out, realize he's gone. Takes a whole other day back, and then a day of looking. Find him on the third day, right? They realize where he is, and they find him at the temple. Huge. Why? The temple's going to be the center stage for the rest of his ministry. Right, I mean, Jesus, John says in his gospel, Jesus goes to the temple day after day after day. This is where Jesus will preach, this is where Jesus will teach, this is where Jesus will speak. I mean, he'll ultimately go in there and say, this place is going to be torn down three days, I'm going to rebuild it. I mean, the temple is a massive center cornerstone to Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. So they find him in the temple and they find him sitting among the most intelligent, educated of the day. And a picture of the scene. As he's sitting there, he, all, the, all the Jewish rabbis would teach in like question and answer dialogue. Okay, that's, how they would, that's how they would teach. So they're, they're, they're teaching, and this is the only time Jesus is student. When he turns 30, he's always teacher. Okay, this is the only time you're going to see him as a student to the teachers of the day, and he's listening to them teach. 
He's listening to them as they are professionals in the law, in the prophets, in the Pentateuch, in Moses, in poetry, in history, in Hebrew. I mean, they're just experts. And he's just sitting there. And he's just throwing out questions. This is like the show, you know, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? You know, the people who are older just like, man, how do you know that? They're just stumped. They're blown away. Jesus is sitting there just having a field day. He knows it all. And these Jewish teachers are astonished. Now, I think part of this is Jesus in Podunk, Nazareth, never had a chance to be with these type of scholars. So I think, number one, he took advantage of going and sitting with them. Okay, because if you were a young boy, at the age of 13, you're released from, you're actually qualified to obey the law fully. Actually, at the age of 13 is when Jewish dads would take their sons to the Passover to show them the weight of the law towards their sin and show them what they were responsible for. So, interesting that Joseph takes Jesus at 12, before he turns 13, to kind of maybe show him, hey, this is what you're going to be accountable to, this is what you're going to be a part of, you're going to be an adult now. And so he's sitting there with all these kids that would love to gather around and listen to these teachers, his question and answer, and they're just astonished at his knowledge. They're blown away at this 12-year-old boy. How does he know that? How does he speak that way? And you can kind of see this whole scene, and they, they find him, and he finds his way into this gathering, and he's listening, he's asking questions, he's being a student, and Luke says... All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So apparently these men who had studied their entire lives, devoted their lives to knowing something, were astonished at a 12-year-old. Now there's no pride in Jesus. He's not sinning. He's respectful. He's a listener. He's submissive. He's answering questions as he should. And his questions are so profound, they astonish the teachers and listeners. And here is what is interesting. Mary and Joseph find him. They find Jesus, and they're astonished. But they're not astonished in the same way the teachers are astonished. They're astonished at his location. They're going, what are you, what are you doing sitting here with all these just brilliant men? They, they thought, man, if our son's lost, he's going to be out somewhere, kind of like dying to find his parents, crying in a corner, you know, where's mommy and daddy? And instead, he's just totally content sitting with these Jewish teachers, listening and responding and answering in questions as if no one's left. Not afraid, not fearful of his parents being gone. So they're astonished by that. This is where we find him? And we thought we were going to find you, like, just dying to look. Don't you love mom and dad? Don't you miss us? We've been gone for three days. And, and there's a separation happening here. And then Mary puts the guilt trip on Jesus. You ever do this as a parent? Man, what's your problem? I mean, were you like trying to make us terrified? Were you trying to give us anxiety, right? As if that was Jesus' motivation? I mean, why are you treating us this way? We've been worried sick. We can kind of understand Mary's confusion, heart, desire, but he hasn't been hiding. Jesus hasn't been disobeying. He's actually in the best possible place, right, at church answering questions, right? I mean, if you're going to lose your kid, wouldn't it be great to know they were at church, with the church, you know? Oh, Jackson, good, oh, smart, godly boy, you know, like you're with the church asking questions, answering questions. He's not running around being crazy, being a misfit. He's right there. And Mary asks, where have you been? We've been looking for you. And Jesus answers with one of the most profound statements a 12-year-old mouth could articulate. He says, did you not know I was in my father's house? Didn't you know I should be in my father's house? He knew exactly who he was. So you want to try to get around, Jesus didn't know who he was, he wasn't really sure. Right here he declares his deity and this moment for Jesus is massive. Because in this moment right here as he declares who his allegiance really is to, what his deity really is, as he says all of these things, this moment is huge because Jesus is moving from his responsibility from earthly parents to his earthly responsibility to his true father. So he looks at him here as, he, as he's talking, and listen, 
they all knew who he was. I mean, Mary and Joseph knew he was the Son of God. They knew he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. They knew that he was the promised Messiah. They knew all this. But something about this statement is really kind of beyond their grasp that Mary can't really get. Because she knew all those other things. There's something about, wait a second. The son who I am commanding, I'm ultimately going to have to submit to and obey? Wait, wait, the, the, the boy who I've been kind of just like awing and wonder over, I'm actually going to have to worship him? And, and she's trying to take in all of these things. And it's incredible. This moment is huge. And he establishes his identity and says, I've come to do the will of the Father. Didn't you know that my true Father is God? And I'm in his house? Right, that's where the presence of God was dwelling? Didn't you know that you're not really my father, Joseph? You're my earthly father? And, and this is just absolutely profound as Jesus is explaining this. And, and look at Mary and Joseph's response. They didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't get it. <laughs> Even knowing all of who he was, there was something about this that went beyond their understanding. And you'll often see this, right? In Jesus' ministry, what does he do? He says things. What are people doing? They're just scratching their heads. Just read the Gospels, right? He'll say things. They're going, what are you talking about? I don't understand that. Well, I'll reveal it to you later, you know? This is so consistent with the way that Jesus worked. There were things that were beyond finite human beings' grasps and understanding, and he's just going, you're temporary, mom and dad. Nazareth, that's not my real home. It's a temporary home. You guys aren't my real parents. You're my temporary parents. My allegiance is to my true father who is God and my true house is God's house which is his temple. Look at what happens next. This is beautiful. Verse 51. He still went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Similar, right? Mary did that when the shepherds came. She treasured all these things in her heart, pondered all these things. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay. Jesus is fully God, fully man. I think there are a few texts you're going to see it more explicitly than here. So his true relationship with his father didn't nullify his obedience to his parents. He's submissive to them. He still goes back with them. Why? Because he has to live the perfect life to fulfill the law. Honor your father and mother. Okay. I'll honor my father and mother. Even though he didn't have to, he was God. He chose to. He lived in submission to his parents' requirements. He did as they asked. He was respectful, obedient. Amazing that you see this right here in this passage as he goes back with them to Nazareth. He's obedient through childhood, through his birth, through adolescence, all the way to adulthood, and Mary yet again ponders these things. She, she just is storing them up. She just is trying to get over the weight and gravity of all this. I can't believe that my son, who I have full authority over, I ultimately am fully in submission to imagine if that was your your son how weird that would be you try i mean right i mean we love authority we love being parents we love being having control and saying what goes in the house and all of a sudden th this child you're going to be totally submitted to he's going to be over you and you're going to love worshiping him above yourself and what you command you're going to want to listen to what he commands that, that's hard to ponder that's hard to figure out. That's hard to understand. So you can get why she's like, I don't really get this. I'm storing all these things up. I'm treasuring them in my heart. In, in, in Mark 3, this is an interesting passage. If you, if you look there, what happens? All the crowds come to Jesus and they go, hey, your mom's looking for you. What does he say? Who's my mom? The one who does my will and the will of my father. Oh, guess what? That person's also my sister, also my brother. What was he doing? Was it that he didn't love his mom? No, he deeply loved Mary. He was showing and revealing that, hey, I'm distancing myself from the command of my parents to do what my father demands of me. There, there's a separation happening because I'm not totally tied to this. 
There's this limbo, there's this towing the line that he's walking as he heads into full adolescence and ultimately adulthood. And she, he's trying to show Mary, I'm not just a son that does what you want. I'm a son that has to do what my father demands of me. So what you command of me is, is good and great and beautiful, but man, what my father demands of me is ultimate. So there's a bit of a separation here. And that's why he declares that and shows that as the age of 12. Now, the question really is, looking at just this text, is why? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we see him at 12 years old? Why does it matter? Because here's the other question I've had. I don't know if you've had this, but okay, if, if, if Jesus just needed to die and, and be buried and rise, and that, that forgives me of my sin, okay, why couldn't he just close the deal quick in like three days? Why couldn't he just send him down from heaven, have him live a short life, okay, die on the cross, rise again, and give me my forgiveness and credit my righteousness? Like, why did he have to live the life? Why do you have to be born? Why do you have to be an infant? Why do you have to be a child? Why do you have to be a boy? You ever thought about that? I mean, why did all these things have to happen? What's the point of being 12 and Luke detailing what he's doing in the temple, listening to scholars, being perfectly obedient, being tested with temptation and trial? What, what's the big deal? Because 18 years later, right, he's going to enter in his ministry. And here's my fear. I, I feel like people think when he hit 30, he had like an epiphany. Right, he hit 30, then all of a sudden he's perfectly sinless, all the temptation comes, all the assaulting of sin. No, it happened as an infant, as a baby, as a boy, as a teenager, as a young adult, as an adult. He was assaulted with temptation the whole way. Here's why. He had to live the perfect life for you. Life. He couldn't just live four years. He was becoming the perfect substitute for you. Okay, that, that big word substitution, okay, that doctrine that we believe that Jesus actually was our substitute, that he stood in our place, that he, he took the sin that we deserved on himself. Okay, th this, is, this is huge, and you're seeing why in this text that for all these years, God couldn't just come down for a week, suffer, die, rise, and gift his Holy Spirit. Because the righteous requirement of a holy God is a life lived of perfection. I mean, what do you do as an infant for the righteous requirement of you in your sin as an infant? Jesus. What do you do as a little child, four and five years old, as you're struggling with sin and you're not doing what mom and daddy want? I mean, what's, where's the hope for you of the substitute of a perfect life who did that for you when you were four? Jesus. And it goes all the way up. I mean, Jesus had to be your substitute for your life, not just for aspects, not just for adulthood. And so here we see the point of 33 years of temptation and suffering and angst and all of these things, obedience, patience, growing in favor with God and man, going to Passover, obeying authority, walking the line, being submissive to his parents, doing the Father's will, because he ultimately had to be the full sacrifice for you. Look at, look at, we'll end with Hebrews chapter 5. I want, I want to show you something here just to end. Because writer, and it'll be on the screen, the writer of Hebrews is going to say something that I think is just really, really beautiful. Many of you guys are familiar with this text. Hebrews 5 verse 8 says this, Although Jesus was the Son of God, fully God, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered not talking about his death there. It's talking about his life. Through his life, he learned obedience. So he had the mind of God. He knew what obedience was in his mind, and he experientially practiced that obedience, which led him be, led him to the perfection of the sacrifice required for you. Okay, so, so under, seeing this right here in, in Hebrews, it, we're seeing that, man, he was tempted at every point in his life. You can't miss him. Infant, child, boy, adult. It matters how he acted when he was 12. It matters what God reveals about him when he was 12. And it says he learned through that, through the suffering, through the temptation, and through him triumphing over it, he demonstrates, yes, I'm sufficient for you. 
if he wasn't assaulted at every stage of his life with the dynamics of that and never triumphed over it when he was 12 or younger or older, then he couldn't be the perfect sacrifice. That's why it says in verse 9, this is huge. That is what made him perfect and able to become to those who obey him what? The source of eternal salvation. Like, like him living the entirety of an adulthood from infant to 33 perfect life is what enables him to be your substituted life on the cross. Like it, it really matters. Because what happens on the cross, right? This is the great exchange. I mean, God actually judges Jesus according to his life for you. So he doesn't put Mike Reed on the cross. He puts Jesus up there in the place of Mike Reed. I mean, that, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of substitution, that he substitutes you, wicked, idolatrous, pagan sinner, for Jesus. He says, no, he's going to live it for you. He's going to live it. So when you feel guilt, condemnation, struggle, you look back and go, he lived my life for me. No, he already lived it for me. The shame you feel the, when the past is your greatest thief, you say, he already lived it for me. When I was four years old, I remember sins I committed when I was four. He lived it for me when he was four. I remember being a teenager, I mean, just, just not honoring my father and mother and falling short of all that God says is right and good and not understanding the things of God were good, but he did. He did. He literally did it for you. Our lives, when you become one in Christ, when you trust in him, he says we are now one with him, Christ and God. We become one with Christ. His life is literally yours. The life he lived for you, his perfect life, obedient life, is yours. And he went on the cross and was judged, God judged Jesus for our sin. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, beautiful passage. God made Jesus, who never sinned, to become sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. <laughs> he didn't judge Jesus for sin. He didn't have any. He judged him for your sin. He put him up there and said, for Mike Reed, I judge Jesus. And, and here is what is beautiful that we can't miss. That's not where it ends. <laughs> I mean, that's glorious enough. That's not where it ends. It's not just Jesus was judged on the cross for your sin. He then counts the life Jesus lived for you. And we've talked about this. I say this. All the time, because I want us to get it, forgiveness of sin alone still leaves you lacking before a righteous and holy God. So it's not enough that he just judges Jesus for your sin. He has to give you a life that's perfect. He has to credit you something. So because Jesus lived the perfect life, he goes, oh, and you get the life that Jesus lived? Perfect. Yeah, credited your account as if you lived that life. I mean, that's why we have to see his obedience and his beauty in his adolescent age. Because Luke's going, no, you're getting the perfect substitute. You're not getting partial. You're getting the whole thing. This is absolutely amazing. This is the other beautiful side of the doctrine of substitution. And that's why that life qualifies him alone to be the source for you and me of eternal salvation. Because not only does he go to the cross and take it for you, the life that he did live that was perfect, he gives to you. This is why we went through Philippians. Philippians 3, I was thinking about that a lot this week. What, if, what did he say in Philippians 3? After he lists all the things he did that were so beautiful and right, the righteous requirements according to the law, according to man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zeal, passionate about the law, did really good works. He said, it's not a righteousness of my own. It's a righteousness that comes from God. That qualifies me, right? That he gives to you based upon the work of his son. It means that God treats you, if you're in Christ, as the literal life of Jesus. So as we walk through the gospel of Luke, as you marvel at Jesus' life, you're getting this life. This is the life that he's crediting to you. And, and I think right here, we see it for a brief moment. It comes into focus right here. Joseph, Mary, mom, dad, 
I'm not really your son. I'm really the eternal father's son. Don't you understand the life I'm supposed to live? Don't you get who I am? Don't you get my mission? It's unbelievable here. I'm not really your son. God is my father. I can't really belong in your house. I belong in my father's house. He's separating himself. The weight of his identity and deity is shining through that statement. Beautifully. And you see that he will go on to be the true son of God that delights in his father's will. And and he pays for it all. See, we need to understand, this idea of substitution is what totally is distinctive of the Christian doctrine and the Christian belief. There is no other system out there where you have a purchased, perfectly righteous deity or being who is put in your place for you, not only to pay for your sin, but give you his life so you don't have to do anything but trust and rest in that alone. Pure grace. There's no other belief system that has substitutionary atonement in the way that the Christian doctrine does. We've got a lot of ideas how people want to pay for sin and be righteous. Oh, I'm going to avenge. Okay, well, that means you're trying to tell someone else to do it. Well, Jesus did it for you, right? Or purgatory, which there's a famous belief of that where somehow you can do it or get rid of it. No, Jesus already did it for you, right? Or karma, crazy belief where you kind of come back and then you pay for it again. No, you don't need to pay for it again. Jesus already did it for you. You have Jesus, the one who paid it in full, not only paid it in full, but then gifts you and credits your bank account what you need according to his righteous life. And you cling to that. So here's my question to you. And this might sound a little weird, but where are you in your life functionally living like you're the substitute necessary? I mean, where do you find yourself endlessly striving to live a righteous life, a holy life, a good life, a pleasing life? Believing that really you should be the one on the cross, not in payment for sin, but, but being the righteous requirement for sin. Do you see how damning that is? I mean, we all agree, yeah. I mean, most of us say, yeah, I believe I should be on the cross. Like, I know the weight of my sin, but I don't think we realize the times where in our acts of righteousness, trying to turn favor, obtain righteousness, thinking that if I do this, God's going to look more favorably upon me. You start trying to become your own substitute. You're thinking, well, Jesus really wasn't the perfect one, so I should have hung, because that would have satisfied the righteous requirement. I mean, where do you find yourself, and you know what that just leads to? Deep anxiety, deep struggle, deep bitterness, anger, frustration. When you consistently believe that Jesus' righteousness wasn't enough for you, his substitutionary death in your place wasn't enough, i got to still do something. I still have to add to it. I still have to work at it some way. And really what you're saying is, I should have been the substitute. God should have picked me. (laughs) Wow. Right? I have those thoughts often, subconsciously, intentionally, those creeping lies. You know what? Mike, man, you're pretty righteous. You're pretty good. You pastor. You elder. You preach the Bible. I think you might be a good person to hang on the cross for other people. Nowhere near. Nowhere close. He is the only sufficient one to hang and die and give his life for sinners. So where do we see elements of us living functionally as if we're a better substitute than Jesus? And, and hear me, brother or sister, if you are struggling this morning and you are in Christ, just take a second and enjoy that he lived the life for you. He already did it. Looking at your shortcomings of last week and your failures or maybe five years ago still haunts you. You still have memories that are conjured up in your head or in your mind and the guilt and condemnation and shame. (laughs) He already lived it for you. A perfect life. And it's given to your account. 
Today, when we walk out the doors of this room, today when you and I get at our spouses or at our kids or we feel something in our hearts that we shouldn't feel in that moment, Jesus lived my perfect life for me. Praise God. He lived the perfect life for me. He was my substitute. I get his life. And that cultivates worship. That cultivates praise of his name. That cultivates deep gospel-centered joy. Let's ask God to help us to enjoy that and to live in that this week. God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, you, that that your life lived at all spans of ages matters because you had to live a righteous life. Not a righteous week, not a righteous month. You had to live a righteous life into adulthood. God, I, I think of those this morning who might be here. They've never trusted in Christ. They've never repented of their sin. They've never called out to you in mercy and forgiveness. God, they've been striving their entire life thinking that if they did enough, they could ascend to you and be one with you and enjoy you and have fellowship with you. God, may they see this morning that, that you do not ask for us to ascend, but you descended to us. And God, that you bore their sin on the cross, that the right wrath of God that was towards them in their sin, the death that is coming for them, that if we trust in the blood of Jesus and put it around the doorposts of our heart, you pass over it. That there's no judgment for us, there's no curse, there's no condemnation. <laughs> that death does not destroy us, that sin does not destroy us, but we're given life. May they see you as beautiful this morning. May they see you as saving. May they see you as rescuing. God, I pray for those who are in Christ, who love you, who desire to live a life of repentance and a life of worship. God, may they have clear eyes to see the spots where maybe they have been falling into unbelief in not a good way but a negative way in believing that your substitutionary death was not enough that the righteous life you live was not enough it does not cover their sin that God as they almost try to pull Jesus down and climb on that you would reveal to them the self-righteous damning belief that that is that you hung and you died and it was sufficient that God we would enjoy that I thank you that according to the book of Hebrews you are and able to be the source of eternal salvation because of your life lived and how you learned obedience to where the perfection was realized not just experientially but actively as temptations assaulted you as all the things that man will encounter came at you. You fully triumphed over them. You never caved in to be the sacrifice necessary. God, as we observe your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, we remember this death that was a substitute for us. We praise you for your broken body. Praise you for your blood that was shed so that we might live in newness of life not in bondage to sin, not under the curse of sin, but in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.